I am no sociologist, psychologist, or political scientist, so I may be stepping a little bit out of my area of expertise and, of course, stand to be corrected. But it must be clear to all of us that we live here in the United States of America in a very individualistic society and culture. We've been trained both by education and by experience to believe that we have our fate in our own hands, that we can and should pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we can succeed in anything we set our minds to. At the end of the day, we're individuals. Even our Christian evangelical roots have taught us that. The most important question we've been taught in life is, what's going to happen to me when I die? This week on Friday, I was in the waiting room of a hospital, and there were a number of people there, and a middle-aged man, obviously from Philadelphia, was talking, and because he was obviously from Philadelphia, he was complaining about Philadelphia. He said he'd lived there for a long time, but that as soon as his kids were out of the house, he was going to move. The reason why he was going to move, he said, and I quote him literally, why should I pay $12,000 a year for school taxes when I don't even use them? My kids aren't in school. Why should I pay so that your kids can go to school? And now in these years of COVID and political and societal polarization, there's something else happening, something deeper. And David Brooks, the conservative columnist, wrote this on the 14th of January, which was, what, five days ago or two days ago, in an article entitled, America is Falling Apart at the Seams. And he wrote this, but something darker and deep, deeper seems to be happening as well. Listen to this. A long-term loss of solidarity. A long-term rise in estrangement, pulled out of each other, and hostility. This is what it feels like to live in a society that is dissolving from the bottom up as well as from the top down. So there's this deeply embedded individualism, individualism, along with now this feeling that we're, we're, we're moving further and further away from each other, that hostility is growing, and we wonder if we'll ever be able to pull together again, or how that might even happen. And as I've worked through these three chapters of Deuteronomy, the first three chapters of Deuteronomy this week, I've wondered whether these three chapters might offer us a helpful perspective for our time, even though they were written so many centuries ago. And I've been reading lately a book by an author that you will know, Diana Butler Bass. The book is called Grounded. And the chapter I've read this week is the chapter entitled Roots. And she quotes uh, Howard Brinton. Apparently, Diana Butler Bass herself is de descended from Quakers. 
And she quotes Howard Brinton, a Quaker leader, from his autobiography. And the quote should appear on your screen. A common modern American way of thinking, which holds that every tub stands on its own bottom, that every man is an isolated individual and responsible for his own ability and character, is not true biologically, psychologically, or spiritually. Those who have preceded us are bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, and we can no more separate ourselves from them than a plant can separate itself from its roots. We are deeply connected to the past and to the people from whom we come. And in this chapter, in this book, Grounded, uh, Bass talks about the importance of genealogies in the Bible. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that scattered throughout the Bible are these genealogies, which most of us don't know what to do with and read over quite quickly. And she says that these genealogies root us to our past. Our roots, she says, are intertwined. We are all related to one another. We belong to one another. And one of the images that she uses, which I found very, very fascinating, is the image of a web. Listen to this quote and read it with me. Through the search for our ancestors, we discover that the branches of our family trees are entangled. When we make our way through the thick canopy of the past, we discover that lineage is anything but a line. It looks more like a web. The great chain of being has been replaced with a web of life or a web of belonging. So this image that that we are connected to our past, not in a line and not just in a chronological line, but, but in a web, a complex of interrelationships. And that today we're connected with each other in a web of interrelationships. That's a wonder, I've been thinking about it all week. It's a, it's a, and I'm not, even, I'm not even done thinking. It's a wonderful image of this, of this connection that we have. And what I want to start out this morning by saying is, you remember we've talked about Deuteronomy as this end, end of the uh, wanderings through the wilderness where Israel's on the east side of the Jordan. They're waiting to go over and go into the promised land. And then they're looking back, especially in these three chapters, at what God has done. And it's kind of like a genealogy. It's short. It's only 40 years. But it's looking back at what God has done and what, what the path that Israel has wandered. And um, it's also true that the people that were listening to Moses at that time, assuming that the story happened exactly the way, the way it's described here, they hadn't been born when, when the early events happened. They were hearing about something that they themselves hadn't experienced. So in a sense, this, this, these three chapters of Deuteronomy, before we get into the law, looks back, looks back at the ancestry, as short as it is, and finds these connections. And let me just take a moment with you and just review, because I'm not going to read all three chapters or we'd be here right through the kickoff of the game. And none of us, of course, none of you want that. I wouldn't mind, but of course you, 
you, you wouldn't want that. So um, uh, I have a little laser here. It's a little bit blurry, but that's all right. I think you can get the picture. And those of you at home won't be able to see my little red light, but you can figure it out. So Israel leaves the land of Goshen. They go, uh, I'll just use the laser, Christopher, thanks. Uh, and they go down here, cross the Red Sea, go down here, end up at Sinai. Um, and then the, the history that's described in these first three chapters of Deuteronomy begins at Sinai. It doesn't go back here at all. It starts here. So Israel leaves Sinai and heads up to here. Um, and then that's the point where you may remember they were going to enter the promised land and they decided to send these 12 spies. So they sent the 12 spies. The, the spies went in and they brought back all the riches of the land. You remember this big, this big uh, grape thing that they had, to, this grape, what's a grape thing called? Grape? Uh, anyway, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. I can't come up with a word. Um, and and ten, of the, 10 of the spies were scared to death. There's giants there. We can't go in there. And J- Joshua and Caleb, of course, said, well, of course we can. The people of Israel uh, decided not to go. And so God said, um, I'm going to punish you by letting you wander in the wilderness for a whole bunch of years. This generation will die out, and then I'll send the next generation. That got Israel mad again. So they said, we don't care what God says. We're going to go anyway. So they, uh, they headed up into the, into the land of Canaan, and uh, they basically got the tar beat out of them. Uh, they, they, the, 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 the first people they ran into chased them away the, the way the Bible describes it. Uh, they were chased, uh, they were chased the way that bees, you know, the swarm of bees chasing people. So that didn't work very well. So they spent 40 years wandering around in here in the wilderness of Zin. No one knows exactly where all they went to. And then in the, in the time, the year or so before these events in, in Deuteronomy, they come up here along the east side, and up here they conquer um, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. So they basically um, make, make the eastern side of the Jordan safe for themselves. The two tribes of Reuben and Gad, and then half the tribe of Manasseh, decide to stay here on the east side of the Jordan while the other tribes move, back, move into Canaan. And Moses, of course, says to those two tribes, you're welcome to stay here, but when we go into Canaan, you have to send your fighting men. You can't just stay here and rest and send us in. So there's this, this solidarity. So in this whole history of Israel, we hear about a people who need leadership and judges to settle disputes among them, rebelled against God a number of times, complained and murmured in their tents, were afraid and in dread, did not believe, did not trust God, who went before them in this pillar of cloud by day and in this pillar of fire by night. They disobeyed every chance they had just about, engaged in war. So Israel looks back and looks back at what's happened, and this is what they see. Moses pulls no punches. He tells them exactly what they did and how it went, and in many cases, that it wasn't all that great. And Bass says this about that, looking back at your ancestry. Ancestry is more than a pedigree. 
It is a handing down of patterns of faith, doubt, joy, and despair. Psychology has moved in the direction of poetry as it increasingly discovers that no person is an island. Rather, we're dependent upon relationships and connections that saturate our understanding of ourselves. And the more honest we are in telling the stories of our ancestors in the web, the more we will be able to understand ourselves and the possibilities carried in our emotional DNA for our future. I think this is a tremendously helpful sentence for us in 2022. The more honest we are in telling the stories of our ancestors in the web. You can leave the quote up there, Christopher, thanks. I've said this here before, but I believe that the education that I got was not totally honest. It left out a lot. And it skewed things in a positive, heroic way. We learned about Martin Luther's Here I Stand. We didn't learn about his anti-Semitism. We didn't learn about what Manifest Destiny was really about. We didn't learn about the doctrine of destiny. We didn't learn about what racism really was like and how it infected us. We didn't learn about our militarism, our, our materialism. We just didn't learn those things. And what we're called to do now is look honestly at them so that we can understand ourselves and the possibilities as we move ahead toward the future. And I think that's a lot of the strife that's happening in our culture right now. We're starting to look and say, honestly, we did these things, but we also did these things. And it's only when we're honest about that that we can put ourselves back together in an honest and open and authentic way and then find the resources that we need to move ahead toward the future. And as we look back, especially we as Christians, we find what Moses and Israel found. Look at these verses from Deuteronomy 1, 30 to 31. The Lord your God, says Moses, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes in the, and in the wilderness, where you have seen, and listen to this, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. So we look back honestly. This was great. This was magnificent. This was awful and horrible and terrible. But through all of that, God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place and this day. And Bass goes on further. According to Hebrew teaching, the inheritance of human beings is not primarily sin, but blessing. As the ramifications of goodness last many times longer than those of evil. 
Catholic priest and theologian Diamond Omerchu refers to this as ancestral grace. The belief that, quote, God has been with humanity on the whole evolutionary journey of seven million years as the great gifting power that nourishes and sustains all being. We live and move and have our being. And if that rings a bell with you, that's a quote from Paul on the Areopagus in Athens. We live and move and have our being in a great web of belonging whose connective tissue is grace. We live and move and have our being in a great web of belonging whose connective tissue is grace. That's one of the things that I want to give you this morning to think about again as you deal with the fractured world in which we're living. We're part of this web. Past, present, future, horizontal, vertical, us with each other, us with God, us with creation. And our inheritance is not primarily sin, but blessing. And the connective tissue of this web is grace. Just like when Moses looks back with Israel and says, this is the way you were, and it was pretty bad at times. Still, God carried you like a son. So that's the first thing, just a real quick look over the first three chapters. The second thing I just want to point out for just a second is the importance of justice. In the verses, uh, in the, from verses 15 or 16, I don't remember exactly which verses they are, of chapter 1, Moses tells the story of how he appointed the judges over the people of Israel. You remember, may remember that story. I will point out to you that the way Moses tells the story here in Deuteronomy is different than the way it's told in Exodus and the way it's told in Numbers. In Exodus, the story is told that Moses is floundering because all of these people need judgment from him. And his father-in-law Jethro comes and makes a management suggestion. Why don't you appoint leaders to judge in Numbers, it's not Jethro that's there, but it's God that says to Moses, hey, I have an idea, why don't you do this? And in this particular uh, telling of the story in Deuteronomy, it's Moses who thinks up uh, this brilliant idea. But anyway, aside from that, he says, I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. So right at the heart of Israel's history, a foundation bedrock of Israel as they move into Canaan is this idea of justice. Judging righteously between a man and his brother or the alien, the undocumented immigrant who is with you. Don't be partial to anyone. Listen to the small and the great. Don't be intimidated. Don't be bribed. But speak and do justice. It's at the heart 
of who we are as a people. And then there's this very poignant passage at the end of chapter 3, which I would like to read with you, where Moses um, tells about how he pleaded with the Lord that he would be able to go into the land of Canaan. So let's uh, read this passage as it appears on your screen. And Moses says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill, con- that good hill country in Lebanon. You have to realize that Moses here is about 120 years old. And since he was 40 years old, since he was called by the burning bush, this has been his mission to liberate Israel from the slavery in Egypt, to lead them through the wilderness, and to bring them into the promised land. And, and he, he has given every single thing that he has to do that. And now God has said to him, no, you can't go in. I won't let you go in. Verse 26, But the Lord was angry with me because of you, Moses, at this point, isn't blaming himself. He's blaming them. And would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. And look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of his people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So Moses, this leader of his people, with all the longing that he has, is not allowed to go into the land. But instead, God says to him, I want you to choose Joshua the spy who 40 years ago had gone into the land and come back saying, we can do it. Because he's going to lead my people, my chosen people, into this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. So as Deuteronomy looks back on these 40 years, it not only sees God carrying Israel through the wilderness. It not only sees this emphasis on justice, it sees God raising up these leaders. These people, these men and women, who will, with all of their sins and all of their failures and all of their gifts and all of their abilities, will follow Him and will lead His people into the place that they should go. And then I read this paragraph in Christopher Wright, which just really impacted me. You can go on to the next uh, picture. Would it have eased Moses' pain and disappointment, we might wonder, if he could have known that one day he would stand on the land, 
on another mountaintop and have a conversation with that very servant, the servant that was to follow him, about the sacrifice, indeed the exodus, he was about to accomplish. You remember the story of Jesus on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And Jesus is transfigured, and this glory comes, and two men appear with him. One is the prophet Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, and the other is none other than Moses. Moses is now in the land. But now he's passing on the leadership, not to Joshua. And what do you think the name Joshua means? Savior. And what does Jesus mean? Savior. Now Moses has kind of skipped Joshua's in the past. Joshua's part of this web. And Moses is passing this on to Jesus who described his going to Jerusalem to be killed as the exodus. And the night before he was killed, what did he celebrate with his disciples? The Passover. This is all exodus imagery. So Moses ends up having the privilege of standing on the land, standing on this mountain, passing the law, as it were, the torch on to Jesus, the real servant, the real savior, the real prophet, who is the one who through his death and resurrection is capable of bringing this great community of people. And now it's not just Israel. It's a great company, as Revelation says, that no one can number. Standing before the throne, on this new heaven and this new earth, this new promised land, connected with each other, this great web, connected by grace, that we're now a part of, and yet so longing that it will one day be fulfilled. And it will, because Jesus rose from the dead, And he's coming again. I'd like to conclude with two different kinds of videos. One is an interview. You remember a few weeks ago, and I'm sure you saw in the news, uh, that I mentioned that Bishop Desmond Tutu had passed away. He was 90 years old, I believe, when he died. And when he was 81, he came to the Netherlands for the last time. And he gave an interview in a program on TV called The College Tour. And this is a program where a well-known Dutch um, journalist brings together a group of college students, maybe 100 or 150 or so, and has interviews with famous people. And this, this time it was Desmond Tudor, the last time that he was in the Netherlands. So I'd like to show uh, some clips. Of the, the whole program is about 50 minutes long, so I'm just showing a few clips of it. But I want you to notice how Bishop Tutu talks about this web. He doesn't use the word web, but this family, these connections. I want you to notice how he talks about Nelson Mandela as this, as this leader, kind of like Moses. And then I want you to notice how he looks toward the future and gives us a, a, a reason to move ahead into the future. And then once the interview is done, 
I'd like to give you a few moments to just reflect and think about what we've been talking about. Um, there are the song, um, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, will be played. And I'd just like you to meditate and ask God, number one, to help you and all of us pull out of this individualism that we're such a part of. It is such a part of us. We can deny it. I can deny it all I want. But it is deep, deep, deep in my bones and my DNA. How can I move out of that to understanding and living that we really, as if we really are part of this great connection, this great web? And what would God have me to do? I'm not Moses. I'm not Nelson Mandela. I'm not Bishop Tutu. But I'm who I am in my place. What would he call me to do? So that instead of our society being broken apart and us estranged from one another, we'd be able to pull together and make steps toward becoming the kind of people that God has called us to be. Bishop Tutu. In in Netherlands, we... Uh, we hear about Africa mostly through celebrities, Western celebrities, and uh, not so many directly, like people as you from Africa. So what, what are we missing because of that, and what can we learn from Africa? In, in our part of the world, we, we speak of something called Ubuntu, Ubuntu, uh, which is the essence of being a human being. Uh, a person is a person through other persons. And in, in the traditional community, you don't eat in separate plates. You eat out of one dish because we say we belong together. You notice, I mean, in, in, in Europe, it's a very good thing. I mean, you develop your individuality, your individualism, uh, so that you are lonely in a crowd. Okay, so we le- should learn to share food then. What? So we should learn to share food. Of course. I mean, if you if you eat alone, you get too fat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because actually, one of the things that people forget is that Nelson Mandela was relatively young when he went to prison. And he was angry. Suffering, you know, suffering can embitter you, but suffering can also ennoble you. Mercifully for us, the 27 years that he spent in jail, far from making him bitter, helped him to become a magnanimous, a caring, an understanding human being. He could he could understand the position of the other, the point of view of the other. He is incredible gift, uh, an incredible gift to our country, an incredible gift to the world. And the world the world needs desperately to to know that you know we're actually made for fellowship were made it's a discovery that we ought to be making were made to be one family were meant to be family 
and and we it's a lesson we are not learning. We we operate in many ways as if we were in the jungle, and and we say survival of the fittest, whereas we ought to be saying the weakest must be first. God is trying to teach us that lesson. We are not learning it quickly enough. We we think we think that we are at our best when we beat up all the competition. Yes, there is there is something to be said for being competitive. But ultimately it is it is especially how we treat the weakest. How how compassionate, how caring are we, especially for the weakest? And since I'm an oldie, uh, how do you treat your oldies? <laughs> <laughs> what is the best advice you can give to the students here, the people ah. watching at home? from almost 81 years of wisdom and experience. Yes. Always I, I am incredibly inspired by young people. I just love you. I mean, young people, are you are incredible, really. You are idealistic. You dream dreams. Don't be infected by the cynicism of oldies. Believe that this world can become a better world. A world where there is room for everyone. A world where you have the capacity to in include all and 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 not and not be shaken uh, and and be uh, be scared by the, the successes of others. Dream. Dream of a world where, as you say, poverty is history. Where everyone knows that they have a place in the sun. Dream. Dream. Because you actually get to be adults too quickly and, and, and you forget your dreams. Dream. Because it's amazing actually how God uses, has used over the ages, especially young people. And God wants to use you and you, 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 to make this the kind of world God wants it to be, a beautiful world for all. Desmond Tutu.
Shadow of thy throne, still may we. 